So you have a bunch of money in your IRA, and you might have some stocks or bonds or mutual funds, but you feel like you might like to invest in something else. Did you know that you can invest in real estate, tax liens, private mortgages, gold and silver, horses, livestock, farmland, medical equipment, just about anything? couple of small exceptions, but just about anything in your IRA? Today, we'll tell you how. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. My name is Joshua Sheets, and today is Thursday, January 29, 2015. We're going to have fun today talking about one of my favorite areas, which is how we can use a tax-advantaged account in a possibly slightly more intelligent, or at the very least, more radical way. I bring to you today an interview with a guest named Kirk Chisholm, and I met Kirk at FinCon when I went out there last year. I had been looking for an expert in this area to bring on the show, and we struck up a conversation in the hallway, and he said what he does, and I says, I've been looking for someone like you to bring on the show, <laughs> because as you'll hear in the interview, even though I'm aware of some of, the, some of the laws, this is a very specialized area of planning, and it's something that most of us who've been mainstream advisors don't have much experience with, but Kirk has set up a firm. Going to share with you all about some ideas and some tips and some tactics. We're going to talk all. We're going to mention Mitt Romney's hundred million dollar trust. Talk about how to make that happen and hopefully give you some ideas uh, for how you can invest in some more interesting things in your IRA. Enjoy, Kirk. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. I appreciate you making time for me today. Great, thanks a lot, Josh. I appreciate you having me on been looking forward to this conversation since we met at FinCon and we're going to it's going to be a fun one cuz we're going to talk about self-directed accounts which is a big interest of mine but as we do that though uh, I have a lot of people that listen to the show that are interested in the financial services business and I'd love for you to sketch out a little bit about your background how'd you get into the business what was your path through and where are you and what do you do today Okay um yeah, actually, I started in the in the business in '99, which of course is the top of the market at the time—a wonderful time to start. Um, it started right after college and started working at Kane Weber, who uh, was acquired by UBS uh, shortly after that. And that was in the the wirehouse part of the industry, um, the big broker dealers, and it was a you know it was a good introduction to the industry. Um, Actually, that was probably the first time I had sort of learned about self-directed IRAs because a client of mine had asked me if he could buy an LLC with his IRA, and I'd never heard of that. They don't teach you that there. <laughs> Definitely so not. I asked my manager. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I asked my manager. He said, no, nah, you can't do that. And uh, I said, all right, and asked him a few more questions. He's like, well, you can, but you probably don't want to. I'm like, all right. <laughs> um and then uh, a few years after that, I went over to Smith Barney, which is now Morgan Stanley. You're starting to notice a trend here. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was at Morgan Stanley, uh, when I was at Smith Barney, 
I actually had a client. This was really when I first started getting into uh, self-directed IRAs. Um, and I had a client tell me that he was going to invest in a private note or private mortgage um, through this individual, and he wanted to use his retirement account. And I said, I had no idea. I'd heard of that concept. I have no idea how to do it, uh, but I'm happy to help you through the process. So I went through and learned as much as I could. Of course, I didn't get much help from Smith Barney. They pretty much told me the same answer of, you can't do that. Um, So I went through the whole process and um, learned as much as I could, found some pretty good resources. Uh, There was a book at the time and that I'd read, and uh, some of the custodians had provided some some pretty good learning tools. And I walked through the process and learned quite a bit about it. Um, and at that point, uh, I had actually switched over to an independent broker-dealer, uh, Royal Alliance, because I was looking to expand on the alternative investment side as well as um, the self-directed IRAs. And it was a little complicated. Um, the broker-dealer side makes things challenging because of FINRA. So eventually, I end up starting in an RAA with, uh, with my current partner, and that our, one of our primary focuses was to be the experts in alternatives with self-directed IRAs and 401ks as well. Um, so we pretty much started our, our current firm um, back in 2009, and of course, an interesting time to start. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> You know, I had my same clients that I brought over, but this was uh, it was actually a really good time to, to get involved because people are looking outside of the stock market. So really, in, what we realized is, um, I mean, I'm not aware of any other advisor that specializes in what we do. So, you know, dealing with alternatives is one component because it's something that many people are not familiar with. And working with self-directed IRAs or 401k is a whole other animal. Um, based on our research, 3% of the population is actually investing in alternatives with their IRA or 401k. And less than 20%, I would estimate maybe 12, is even aware of the fact that it can be done. Right. So you really have a, a huge potential marketplace of people that... Um, I mean, we like to say that people should invest in what they know. So if you, you know, if you're an expert in real estate, you shouldn't be investing in diamonds or horses. You should invest in the real estate that you understand and know well. And I've found over the years that you know developers or people who are you know have a background in real estate don't really want to put their money in mutual funds. The, you know, the mentality of the real estate investor is they want to put every nickel they own into real estate. That's mm-hmm. just they, they operate. And, you know, when they become aware of the fact that they can actually do this, their eyes just widen. I mean, it's just amazing to see people realize and say, really? Right. <laughs> it's, uh, it's an amazing conversation. Let me tell you. No, it's, I had an experience similar uh, to yours with regard to being in kind of mainstream finance, 
but I was I was with Northwestern Mutual, and Northwestern yep. Mutual doesn't do any of that kind of alternative stuff. Very conservative, very especially on investment management, kind of very just very straightforward, very conservative, very traditional. But I somehow developed no, not somehow. I had the, I've always had the reputation as the weirdo, the guy who <laughs> you know who <laughs> who thought about all the all the stuff that no one else did. I'd have other advisors, uh, and especially in the last. I would say since 2000, since 08, I've seen a much larger percentage of the population than I ever can figure out in, in the past just simply kind of lose their confidence in the mainstream approach and desire something different or at least something different with a portion of their assets. And so I was the guy that other advisors would say, listen, I've got a client who's asking me about gold, gold coins. I don't have a clue. And they would call me and say, Joshua, what advice do I give a client? You know, it's obviously I can't do anything, but how do I steer this person in the right direction of buying gold coins? You know, they, they see the ads on the, on the cable news channels. What do they, you know, how do I talk them through that in a rational way? <laughs> and so I was the guy who was answering those questions, you know, kind of back off his planning for people. And uh, so so that was when one of the things that I always got the questions on was how do I, you know, I don't, I don't trust stocks. I got to get out of the stock market, but I got all my money in an IRA. What do I do? And that was what got me interested. It was kind of researching how could we use the funds that are in a 401k or in an IRA or something like that, and how could we invest them a little bit more broadly than just whatever a, a, a mainstream. Uh, basket of mutual funds might be. And when I started learning about what was possible, I could never do that. And, and I admire you for <laughs> going through the hassle of setting up the firm to work with that. I can't even imagine the challenge of setting up an RIA to service that type of business. And how do you find custodians? And how do you, you know, I want to hear more about it and your experience in doing that. So I always just referred people out, but I did always make at least learn enough to say, here's how you can structure it. Now, whether or not you're going to be able to find a service provider or not, that's a whole other question. Uh, but I got to imagine if your marketing is working, I mean, this, this has got to be in pretty good demand right now in 2015, right? Yeah, and actually the, um, the setting up the firm is, uh, it goes, you know, quite a funny story. So when we, when we started looking to do this, um, originally we thought, hey, the broker-dealer route, we could do that. And in talking with broker dealers, it was pretty much a no go. There was there was right. no way anybody was going to let us do it. Um, compliance for Finra is just a nightmare, and they said we just don't want to deal with it. Mm -hmm. um, so when we started, um, to, when we set up our RIA, we looked at a few different states. We were looking at state registration at the time, and we had um, we looked at Maine and Massachusetts and New Jersey, and. Um, you know, we, we, I don't want to call anybody out here, so I won't say the states, but let's just say one of the states we said what we wanted to do, they said, you don't need to be licensed to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so we said, all right, next. <laughs> um, and the other, one of the other states that we had uh, gone to, um, originally, because within the first two years, they're supposed to give you an audit. That's a, mm -hmm. a regulation that we try to, try to do. And, so our first audit, we had gone through with the regulators, and we told them what they were doing, and they're immediately they just you know they got frenzied. They said, oh, "Wait a minute, you're you're dealing with alternatives. Aren't those risky?" Right. <laughs> risky like what? Risky like AIG, <laughs> like Lehman Brothers, <laughs> like like uh, Enron. What kind of risky are we talking about? And so it took a lot of education of the regulators to explain that 
you know, risk management, which is a, a, a key cornerstone of what we do, um, risk management is not about whether an asset is publicly traded or whether it's an alternative. Um, it's about the asset itself. So AIG was AAA rated at the time. You know, there's no higher rating. So you could argue that they were one of the safest stocks around, but that turned out to be not true. On the other hand, you could say investing in a piece of rentable property down the street is risky. But, you know, you live close. It's a rental property. You can do the numbers. You know what the risks are. You know, you can mitigate the risks by, you know, making sure you have enough insurance, by, you know, making sure that you have good tenants and, and other, other forms. So um, the risk of an asset is not determined based on how some third party characterizes. It's really how you're looking at the risks and how you feel comfortable with them and can mitigate them. So we've had a, a, a number of interesting conversations with regulators, and, and, you know, we've taught them how to assess the risks of alternative as opposed to just saying it's risky because it's alternative. And I think that is a industry norm that needs to be dispelled. Um, but I found that in we're, um, we're hyper-focused on, on compliance, and we actually set the bar higher than is what is expected because... You know, we understand we're playing in a unique space, and we want, if anybody comes to, to, to play at the playground, we want to make sure everybody else is abiding by those standards. Mm -hmm. Because you know, all it takes is one bad seed, and then everybody else is painted with a bad brush. Right. So we're we're very um, focused on making sure all of the rules are abided by, and, you know, there are gray areas with this, but we make sure that we're in the the lighter part of the gray and, you know, certainly anything that, um, you know, there's case law that changes all the time and, you know, they, they change the rules occasionally. Uh, so, you know, we, we have to make sure that we're, we're up to speed on that and make sure that clients are uh, in compliance. And I think that's, from our perspective, it's very important. I think there are, there's certainly what we found, um, there are a number of people who try to invest in alternatives in an IRA themselves without advice, and we come across a lot of errors that probably shouldn't happen. Um, and I, I think it's unfortunate, but because of the lack of knowledge in this area, um, people tend to, to make mistakes more often than they should. All right, and especially, I would imagine, because this area of planning is going to attract a lot of hype shall we say yep. a lot of times you know the truth you can be pretty close to it and just a tiny bit over and that tiny bit over could wind up being an expensive mistake i want to talk a lot about kind of how to do this and obviously certainly you can mention how you work with people but i also just want to explain to people the general framework of how if this is of interest to them, they could do it. I don't want to spend too much time talking about alternative investments, but I do think we need to start there to lay the framework. And you mentioned in your advertising material, uh, very straightforward, and this was what shocked me when I finally figured it out, that there are actually only a few types of investments that are prohibited from IRAs, based upon my understanding. And correct me, anywhere along the line I get it wrong, because you are much more well-versed in this than I am. But you can't invest in life insurance con contracts, you cannot invest in S-corporation stocks, and you can't invest in collectibles. So anything outside of, so you can't buy artwork. But outside of that, 
pretty much uh, just about the whole world of investing is available to you. And you post a list on your site of ideas of different things that can be invested in with a self-directed account and including real estate, tax liens, private mortgages, farmland, timberland, airspace rights, mineral rights, precious metals, private businesses or franchises, as long as they're structured either as an LLC or as a C corporation, private equity, venture capital, medical equipment leasing, horses, livestock, payday loans, title loans, etc. Is there any other restriction of what you can invest in as long as you stay away from life insurance contracts, S-corporations, or collectibles? Is there anything else other than that that you can't use as an investment inside of a self-directed account? Well, I mean, Joshua, I think you can appreciate this based on the nature of your, your podcast, that you're, you know, you think outside the box and creatively. And I think the nice part about this space is that it allows you to be very creative in the way that you do things. So the restrictions or the prohibited assets inside of an IRA are, as you stated, um, S-Corps, uh, life insurance, and collectibles. However, as with a lot of things in this space, there are rules and there are exceptions to those rules. And in some cases, there are exceptions to those exceptions. So I'll give you an example. So you cannot invest in life insurance. But technically, you can't invest in life insurance on yourself. You can invest in life settlements, uh, life insurance contracts on other people. Um, you know, you can't invest in collectibles, but you can invest in a business that markets collectibles or sells collectibles. So there's, there, there are different subtleties around the rules that can be done. Um, and I, I think that, you know, there's, there are enough ways to get to get things done the way you that you need to get them done, and it's not, you know, we're not breaking any rules. We're not. I mean, believe me when I say that, you know, we're not playing in the the charcoal area of the gray. Um, you know, we make sure that um, there's absolutely no shadow of a doubt that somebody would ever get a, a disqualified uh, uh, transaction through any of these things because, you know, as a RIA, we're fiduciaries, mm -hmm. so. We have a lot of liability on the hook. This isn't just uh, here, go do it yourself. We're, you know, we're on the hook as well. And I think that's, you know, an important consideration that people understand is that we're in it together with them. Um, so we want to make sure that it's done right. Now, uh, another example of of um, things that are misunderstood is we had a client who was looking to buy physical gold and silver inside of his. 401k, his company's mm -hmm. 401k plan. So we went through lengthy discussions with them. We had interviewed um, a, uh, a depository. Uh, we had interviewed uh, dealers, coin dealers. Um, we actually even met with the, we spoke with the ICTA, which is the intangible, um, intangible council. I forget the exact uh, title of it. But at the time, their stance was this cannot be done. You cannot invest in gold in your IRA unless it's kept with a, a dealer. Um, dealer meaning a primary dealer like a, um, a JP Morgan, uh, a bullion bank, if you will. Mm -hmm. And they would have to be housed there. But, you know, if, if anybody has, has looked at buying gold and really has 
thought through all of the different risks. One of the risks that many people in that circle uh, think about is, is you know, with the, uh, the bullion banks, is, is that gold there? Right. Um, well, their ETFs, do they actually house the gold? And, and if somebody wants to buy gold coins for keeping it out of the system, the last place they want to put it at is one of the banks that... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's a little different if you're worried about making sure that you have gold in case of the zombie apocalypse. There's a big difference between holding uh, a one ounce uh, gold American Eagle, you know, in your in your gun safe versus having a piece of paper that indicates that the gold ETF actually has this somewhere in some mythical location. <laughs> right. So we had um, we had we had read through the rules and we you know we actually came up with a solution to that. Um, and explained it to them, and they concurred you know, after speaking with their counsel that that was a, a valid way to do it. But it, you know, it, one of the things that I like is that we we challenge the boundaries. You know, we we make sure that you know my business partner is probably one of the f- f- most foremost experts in this area, and he's you could call him the library with no books. You know, he he understands things off the tip. Why you know, am I right, talking right to you the then? Why, why didn't you just send me to him? What was the, what's the point of this conversation? <laughs> He's on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Join himself. <laughs> um, but my my point is that there's there are a lot of different um, there are a lot of different subtleties and things that can be done, and I think that um, even some of the other rules like prohibited transaction and disqualified persons. Um, there are there are ways to I don't want to say circumvent them, but the ways to work within the rules that you can get things accomplished um, that need to be done. So I, I think it's it's a nice part about this space that that allows you to be creative and allows you to to think outside the box. Um, you know, and there's there are multiple ways to um, to get things accomplished. So some people I'll give you an example. Um, a big, hot, um, very, very heavily advertised area is the checkbook LLC or the checkbook IRA. Right. Uh, and it's 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 a complicated area because it's marketed as a way for people to hide the assets that they're investing in their IRA and to have full, you know, a full authority to invest in whatever they want. And a lot of people take that as a license to break the rules, because if you didn't have the LLC to shield it and you were to invest in those assets at the custodian, the custodian would flat out tell you no if it wasn't something that was legal or allowed. So some people take that as an opportunity to do what they want. And in um, in the face of that, many of the, the larger custodians have flat out said, we will not accept a checkbook LLC as as a as an asset, um, and some of them have actually required a special advisor to be listed on that account to make sure that they are overseeing the account to make sure that everything is above board. So we are one of the special advisors that some custodians that are allowed to oversee it and advise on that. But there's you know enormous liability for them if they allow it, which is why they. They actually shut it down for a few years and didn't allow it at all. Um, and they started to recently open it back up after discussions with some other, you know, attorneys and accountants that are also specialized in this area. And they've, you know, said, look, you, you know, you can't just not do this. You have to, you know, 
put more guidance on there. So they, they did, which is great. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's an area that is, um, you know, there's potential issues with. I mean, flat out, the checkbook LLC is no different than the IRA in that the rules don't, don't change. You still have the same rules that apply. The only difference is, is you don't have somebody else overseeing what the assets are. And, you know, some people like that, and that's fine, but it, it doesn't mean the rules change. It's the, the LLC is a flow-through, so it's not as if, you know, you have a different, uh, different set of rules for that. I can't imagine why anybody in this space would actually want to do and engage in prohibited transactions, but just put it with a shield. When you're dealing with accounts like this, you've got the most public accounts that you could possibly come up with. And if you want to invest privately, just skip the whole thing and go invest privately. <laughs> like, uh, if you want to break rules and break law, then go and and you know just work in the in the in the free market. Go work in the black market. So I don't understand why people approach it that way. Where I look at it as is people that will follow very carefully the letter of the law, but are looking to do a little bit more hands-on focused investing and are, are just looking to structure their affair, affairs in the most uh, you know straight straightforward way. So I don't I don't see why anyone would push it to the point of investing in, you know, prohibited assets. What what types of accounts think, well, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead and feel free to respond. Well, I was gonna say so, so one of one of the um, one of the uh, the reasons possibly is that people don't understand the repercussions. And let me give you an example because I think this um, this will illustrate it as clearly as anybody would ever need. Um, we were aware of an individual, and we were kind of brought into the, the fray a little late to do anything, but we were aware of an individual who had bought um, bus shelters inside of his IRA. And bus shelters? Business. Yes, it's an interesting business. He bought bus shelters and sold advertising off of them. Interesting, okay. Go ahead. And so, he, you know, he, that's his business, and he did very well at it. And, um, you know, it, it seemed to, uh, he seemed to grow his assets, uh, you know, quite substantially. And this individual is the engineer type, you know, dots every I, crosses every T, knows every rule inside and out. I mean, this guy, you know, he didn't make mistakes. And unfortunately, it wasn't his mistake that was the problem, because he followed the rules. But at the time, what was required was a qualified custodian. And what he used was an individual who said he was a qualified custodian, but in actuality, he wasn't. And what happened was the, I think the IRS, um, maybe it was another federal agency, but I think it was the IRS, had, had basically caught him um, and defrauding people. And, of course, what they do is they don't catch you when you make a mistake. They catch somebody else, and then they go through their list. Mm-hmm. Say, oh, look at all these people who this guy's over. Right. <laughs> Let's see who we can add to our list of uh, of people we can get tax dollars from. So when going down the list, they said, oh, here's one guy. He didn't use a qualified custodian, and they took him to court over it. And, wow. of course, you know, this guy totally was defrauded. It wasn't his fault. And ended up that this guy had millions in his um, in his IRA, it might have been over ten. I don't remember. It's, I think it's public record. But um, he had, and basically, he ended up losing it all because what happens is when you create a prohibited transaction today, 
and they don't find out about it for 10 years, the IRS looks at that prohibited transaction and says, okay, that's a distribution. So you, so as of this year, you owe us taxes and penalties on all of the funds that you've taken out. Of course, you didn't know that. So we're talking 10 years later, all of those taxes and penalties and interest accrue, and it ended up where this guy lost everything. And out of sheer um, goodwill from the judge who just was just felt sorry for him, he said, oh, I'll give you a one-time tax-free transfer of $1 million into a Roth IRA. Wow. So he said, look, you can start again, you know, but it was, you know, I, I laugh thinking about it, like, wow, that's nice, that's a nice gesture, but, you know, if this guy had, you know, $10 million plus and he's getting $1 million, it's still, you know, a, a kick, a kick in the gut. So, wow. um, but the point is, is he, he would have lost everything in his IRA because of a mistake that he didn't even, that he technically made but wasn't his fault. So if you can imagine that that's how harsh they are on people like that, imagine how harsh they're going to be on somebody who's deliberately breaking the rules. Absolutely. So it's very important that people understand um, that, you know, the rules are, are they need to be obeyed. So, for instance, um, one uh, type of prohibited transaction is if you own a rental property, you cannot rent it out to a disqualified person. And a disqualified person would be somebody who is in your immediate family, so it would be uh, your, your lineal ascendants and descendants. Um, and, you know, so if you rent the place out to your mother or your, your son or daughter, that's a prohibited transaction. Um, you know, if, you, if the roof leaks or the toilet breaks and you go fix it, that's a prohibited transaction. Um, you if you know, go fix it yourself certain, because you're not uh, explain that one if you go fix it yourself and you don't hire it done that's what you're referring to right so you can you can do what they call a settler function so you can pay the bills you can pay taxes you can hire people but you can't do the what they call sweat equity right you can't you know swing a hammer or you know paint the paint the fence that's that's sweat equity and they don't allow that because they're they couldn't value it, so that's why they don't allow it. Um, so effectively, you're, you know, you have to be cautious of that. You know, if you have hunting land, you can't go hunt on your own, on your own land. Mm-hmm. Um, you basically can't take a personal benefit from your IRA. You have to look at your your IRA as the as, as a local neighbor that you really don't like. And you would treat that IRA in the same way you would treat that person. So you wouldn't give them money. You wouldn't expect them to give you money. You wouldn't expect them to, you know, let you use their car. I mean, you know, these type of things. You have to consider it as a completely separate entity in person. And you cannot take personal benefit from that IRA, even though technically, you know, you have control over it. So, you know, those are, you know, important considerations. And... You know, there are certain things that can be done, like, for instance, if somebody wanted to buy a, a property and rent it out for 10 years and eventually retire there, they could take a distribution of that of that property and then use it. But during the time that it's in the IRA, it can't be done. And, you know, in the case of real estate, if you have a property and you do need a roof, you don't want to have an IRA worth 100000 and you 
spend that entire hundred thousand on a piece of property, and then the roof breaks and costs you say ten thousand, that has to come from the IRA. It can't come from your pocket. Right. So you have to consider the fact that there, are, you know, that it's if you're buying if you're buying it out of your pocket, you have no cash to to uh, you know spend on the roof. It's the same same consideration. You have to find some place to uh, to get it. So. And so I think things like that are important to understand about the self-directed IRA is that, you know, people have to think through all of the different risks and, and things that can happen with their investments and really just make sure that they're, you know, they're following the rules. And the, and the rules are not complex. Um, you know, there are exceptions to a lot of areas, but it, it's as long as somebody is is not trying to get too tricky with their investment it's um you know it's generally really easy to follow the rules so you keep referring to self-directed ira but obviously yeah. there are multiple types of iras and then there are various other types of accounts that can also be self-directed what are the different types of accounts with which you can set up a self-directed strategy to have a bit more flexibility in your investment plan and what are the ones that you're not able to set up okay so when I refer to a self-directed IRA that has a, um, a broad scope so that includes the traditional IRA the Roth IRA uh, simple IRA SEP IRA uh, covered L education savings account and um, the well I should say the covered L and the uh, the HSA, the health savings account, are a little bit different. But it also includes 401k plans. So typically the the traditional and the Roth IRA and the SEP and the simple IRAs more or less have the same rules when it comes to investments. Um, the Coverdell and the HSAs are a little bit different. Um, unfortunately, due to some of the the way that they're structured, it makes it hard to use them for um, alternative investments. Like, for instance, the Coverdell Education Savings Account, the annual contribution limit is $2,000. Mm-hmm. So it kind of limits what can be invested in there um, just by sheer nature of the amount of assets that you have to get in there to, to grow it. Now, I've seen people take small amounts of money and turn it into large amounts of money. Um, I actually uh, wrote a piece about this, about the $100 million IRA, um, which we can talk about later. But it's um, it, it can be done, and creatively, it, it, you can certainly amplify returns if you know what you're doing. Um, but the HSA, unfortunately, as great of as, as a structure as it is, um, effectively you're contributing pre-tax money, um, assuming you have a high-deductible <coughs> health, uh, health plan. Uh, you can set one of these up, you contribute it pre-tax, and the money comes out tax-free as long as it's used for medical expenses, which is great. It's the best thing I've seen when it comes to account structures. Unfortunately, due to all the um, paperwork required by the custodians, very few custodians um, have these. I I found some at a local bank that are really... You know, uh, they don't cost money. They're free or they're low fees. Um, you know, some brokerage houses have them with only mutual funds as an option. 
But with most of the self-directed IRA custodians, <clears throat> most of them have just said no because the paperwork is, is just, just too costly for them to do, and also the market isn't big enough. There just aren't enough people who have enough assets saved to make it worthwhile for them. So that's unfortunate. I, I really hope that changes because that, that is a great account um, for people to use. And then there's the 401k, which is very similar to the self-directed IRA, but the the self-directed 401k also has some other um, uh, benefits to it, certainly higher contribution limits and some other uh, other pieces as well. Um, unfortunately, with the 401k, it, it's, it really is more geared towards somebody who is control, in control of their company. So if somebody has their own business and maybe works with a, a spouse, they can set up a solo K, but if they work for a company of 50, 100 people and it's not their company, then there's probably very little they can do to expand beyond the traditional options of mutual funds. I, I found it's, it's hard to twist the arm of the, um, uh, of the, the higher-ups unless they personally see a benefit in, uh, in doing it for themselves. Yeah, I can't even imagine if... Uh, the, <laughs> I can't imagine the scenario in which I, if I were the CEO of a 30-person company, that I would permit this degree of flexibility in a, you know, in a 401k plan. I, just that the responsibility, the level of sophistication needed to invest successfully here uh, and the, just the level of self-responsibility, I can't imagine. I mean, I can't imagine authorizing it. I wouldn't do it. I would offer a menu of straightforward mutual funds. Um, just, I mean, am I wrong? I, I just can't imagine. I, I see so many mistakes made with, uh, <laughs> with straightforward mutual funds that, for me to give a, a degree of, I've reviewed. You know, some, some I've I've worked with some. You know, I have clients uh, who are attorneys, and I looked at their their accounts, and they permitted uh, some self direction, primarily individual stocks. And I mean, the majority of people get hammered on those things, and I can't imagine being convinced that it would be in the best interest of my employees unless all thirty of my employees were. <laughs> Unless we were doing a private equity group, and I'm and my name's Mitt Romney, and I know my guys are all <laughs> experts. <laughs> Am I wrong? <laughs> well, I, th I think that's that. You're. I mean, you really hit the nail on the head because what what I've found is that with many companies, there's there's a few dynamics at work. <clears throat> the first is the hurting behavior. So, just like mutual fund managers, most HR heads of HR or you know plan trustees. Are worried about their own, you know, their own tail, and they have liability issues. So, the way they look at it is, well, if I offer ten different mutual funds, then my liability is really, really low because everybody else is doing it. Exactly. <laughs> Doesn't mean it's the right thing. Exactly. But if everybody else is doing it, I can hide in the herd of sheep, and I won't get in trouble. And you know, there's some. I mean, you know, most. The other thing is, most of these people that work at corporations, larger corporations, or even mid-sized corporations, um, most of them are not financial professionals. They, they're not astute investors. They're doing what they're told or what have been told through, you know, their own education. I mean, you know, the HR professionals have some education in this degree, but they're not financial, uh, financial professionals. So they don't know one mutual fund from another. They don't know how to research them and and dissect them and know, you know, which one's better and which one's worse. So, you know, I, I can't completely blame them because it's not their 
professional expertise. But on the other hand, they are offering options to people that, a perfect example, it, it's, um, I mean, I see this way too frequently in that there are five to ten offerings Many times, most of them are the same asset class, <laughs> and you know they, you know, if, even if they have an S and P 500 index fund, it would be much cheaper to use an ETF. Mm-hmm. You could do the same thing, accomplish the same goals, but it's there are certain standards in the industry that are accepted, and for many reasons, they continue on along that that path. So, I think with with an alternative with a 401k plan it's obviously a lot more complicated <clears throat> because in the real issue for let's say a 20 person company and they've got 15 people that are really knowledgeable about that one investment let's just say they were going to buy the building that they're that they're renting right so they have an office space they're going to buy that building and they're going to rent from themselves and they're going to also rent it to you know 10 other unit owners or however many people are in the building and they want to do it within their 401k plan so people at the company know the building, they know the you know the other tenants, and they're comfortable with it. The problem isn't the knowledgeable people. The problem is there's always, let's say, one or two, say, lower-end people, maybe not an intern per se, but somebody out of college, or, or maybe a, you know a, a secretary that doesn't really follow the company's business, or you know is maybe new. But you know there's there's people that are less knowledgeable about the business itself, and. Those are the people that you also have to cater to. I don't want to call it the lowest common denominator, but that's what the um, the rules require you to adhere to. Is that everybody, you know, falls under the same rules? So you couldn't offer um, an alternative investment plan to only three people out of twenty. That would be against the rules. That would not be allowed. Um, You would have to offer it to all twenty. Now they don't all have to invest in it, but it has to be offered to everybody. And then, of course, you know, this is the last thing the plan trustee wants is, is um, someone to come in and say, hey, what about this person? This is, this is, uh, this could be an issue, but it's only an issue when something goes wrong, right? It's never <laughs> exactly. an issue when people make <laughs> <laughs> um, So, you know, that's one of the issues. I mean, we, we do see it frequently where a lot of professional service groups, doctors, dentists, accountants, attorneys, um, you know, they have their own practice and a lot of them, you know, buy their own building or, you know, some real estate where they can rent out. And, and that's a very common investment for those mm-hmm. people just because of the, their location. And that's, it's a little bit easier to do that. But, you know, if somebody wanted to invest in physical gold coins or horses, it's a little bit further of a stretch that that's a, an acceptable investment unless everybody really has the same background and expertise. So that is one of the downsides of the 401k with alternatives is it's a lot harder to, um, to make those things work appropriately for everybody. But, you know, certainly you can, you know, there are ways that you can do it. You just have to be really, really careful. Um, and, you know, but if you have a solo K or a smaller company, it's a lot easier to, to work with that because, you know, if you're a solo K, you've got yourself and your spouse. <laughs> right. You don't have to worry too much about the uh, 
the other parties. So that's exactly where I was going to go. Is I see the real benefit here, although I do. It is nice if you could get a professional practice group together, and if it were structured in such a way that there could be enough agreement that an alternative investment could work. But but some of the but but if you take a highly productive something like a consulting firm or you know even a a blog you know some of the some of the very small businesses where there's where, where a solo uh, a solo k can work i mean you can put uh, and especially husband and wife like if if my business were financially productive enough and my wife and i are the only employees and we set one of these things up but i put 50 grand in for me and she and we write the documents and she could put 50 grand in for her now I've got a hundred thousand dollars a year that I can get into the account, uh, into with my contributions and my de- and my deferrals. Now all of a sudden I can start to get some money here, and we can start to have some fun with the investment allocation there, uh, or the people who are coming from a firm, and now we've got a large IRA balance, and we want to take you know three hundred thousand or half a million and this is the money that we're going to keep in a separate self-directed ira and employ it strategically that's where i see the real opportunity right and i, and I think that's um that's certainly the the easier scenario to work with i mean you know i know um we get calls frequently from people with smaller amounts that uh, are trying to do something big with them um you know and, and you know from a fee perspective from the custodians it can be a challenge you know, if you have ten thousand dollars and you're looking to invest in some alternatives, you really have to make make the performance um, higher right. to account for the, the fees because it's not like a brokerage account at E Trade or Ameritrade or, or Fidelity where it might be a ten dollar trade. You know, they charge as a percentage of assets, um, or they charge it per transaction, or both. Um, and there, you know, many different fee models. So depending on if you're going to buy and hold something for 20 years, then you might want the transaction model. Whereas if you're doing 20 transactions a month, month you might want the, the fee model. So it would depend on, on what you're doing. But I, I think that that's um, you're right. It, it definitely is is um, a better type of setup for um, highly compensated people that are also highly educated. And you mentioned before, and I'll I'll. I'll Pick you up on this on, the, on Mitt Romney that the the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, um, the they had done a study a few months back, um, and the study basically said that there are um, let's pull it up here. There are 314 people in the U.S. that have an IRA of over 25 million dollars, and there are 791 between 10 and 25 million, and there are a little under 8,000 people between 5 and $10 million. And this is out of 40, 42, 43 million people. So there are very few people, and I, you know, it's rare that I've seen an IRA over $2 million because right. it's just back in the late 90s, you saw it quite frequently, but now you don't see them as frequently. Um, now, when Mitt Romney ran for for president a few years back, uh, because of his disclosures, it, it came out that he has an IRA of over a hundred hundred and two hundred and four million dollars. Mm-hmm. Now you'd say, you know, that's crazy. How is that possible? <laughs> and I, I think 
there are a few different subtleties that I think he took advantage of that are completely legal. Um, but I think also, I mean, you know, he, this gets back to the invest in what you know um, philosophy, is that, you know, he was investing in private equity deals at, at Bain Capital. He had access to a lot of different deals because of his position. Um, his firm did a lot of deals. And one of the benefits of the self-directed IRA is you can, you can, if you really understand how the rules work and you have access to really good investments, you can be creative and really uh, amp up your returns. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is not saying that everybody should do this because not everybody's an expert in every area. But, you know, with the private equity deals, I think what he, a lot of what he was doing, it, it would require him if he maxed out every year based on his employment, uh, he would have to get about 20% returns a year, which isn't that much, um, considering some of those deals, you know, prove hundreds of percents of return. Um, so I think that, you know, if he can do that with, and I think that's obviously an extreme. That's an extreme end of the spectrum. There's probably not too many people who've done more. Uh, Peter, Peter Thiel, one of the original investors in Facebook, and um, if people have read the, uh, read the book or watched the movie, uh, The Social, Social Network, um, it's, you know, he was the original investor. And he's, I mean, he's, his name's been out there. I think people have heard of him before. Right. Uh, he did similar. He invested in Facebook with his Roth IRA when it was, you know, pennies a share. <laughs> so, you know, here's a guy who's made tens of millions of dollars in his Roth IRA from one investment. So it's it's plausible that these people can, um, you know, generate large returns inside of a tax-free or tax-deferred account. But it doesn't mean that other people can't do something similar. I mean, you don't need to make $100 million. You can make $1 million if you, if you invest prudently over a number of years. Um, and you contribute. Obviously, contributions are a big part of it. So I, I think it's um, there are certain types of professions that have access to certain type, um, certain professions have access to certain types of investments. Uh, I'll give you another example. We had a, a client who had a farm in, in Pennsylvania, and he trained dressage horses. Uh, nobody, if you haven't heard of dressage horses, you won't be along because I hadn't either before this. <laughs> these, <laughs> these are these are um, the type of horses that dance. So there's a certain type of horse they dance. Um, you know, it was, <laughs> it was I wasn't involved with this transaction per se, but uh, I found it to be extremely interesting. Right. So they would. So the farm, they would buy the horses from over in Europe, and they would train them, and then they would sell them to very, very, very rich people. Um, and, you know, the returns they'd get on that that horse were, you know, quite substantial. But this is something they knew. This was their business. This was their bread and butter. So they understood um, the transaction. They figured, well, if I could do this inside of a Roth IRA, why wouldn't I? So I think... Many people have the opportunity to to consider different investments that they know well and would have probably a lower risk in because they understand it better than most people. We, so I think that's really a key important component of you know of investing. Well, in any it doesn't have to be a self directed IRA. It could be traditional investments. It doesn't really matter as long as you understand the, the investments well. That's really the important piece. 
uh, yeah, I I couldn't stand the uh, the <laughs> the criticism that Romney got at at that time. I I get so frustrated by the political commentary. We all have exactly the same tax code. There's no special tax code for Mitt Romney versus tax code for Joshua Sheets. We all function under the identical tax code. And the question is, how much work are we able to put in to understanding a certain uh, nature, part of the market, to finding a, something that we can exploit an opportunity in, and or how much money do we have to pay smart people <laughs> to sit down and figure out solutions <laughs> for us? And we all, they're dealing with exactly the same tasks. That's what frustrates me so much, and I know it's a dead end when we get into politics, but no matter how things are written, unless you just simply remove all of the all of the rules and make things so dirt simple that it's not worth it to uh, to you know it's not worth it to do all the work to try to find something different. The rich are always going to get better returns than the poor because the rich can afford to pay people like you and me to, and people ten times smarter than us and ten times better, more well versed in the law than us to sit and read the code and go through seventy thousand pages and find the way that things can be structured creatively. <laughs> uh, right. We all have the same opportunities, is my point. Now, certainly, uh, I'm not saying that we all have the same opportunity as accredited investors, as part of a private equity firm today, to go in and start structuring de deals and understand someone who can do discounted shares for limited marketability and figure it out how to do some carried interest and transfer that interest over into the... I'm not saying we all have that opportunity, but there's no reason why any single person listening couldn't be there in 15 or 20 years if they wanted to. That's my point. I would I would agree with you wholeheartedly. I think that you know one of the nice parts about this country is the opportunity, and there are a lot of tax advantaged investment types. I mean, you could look at MLPs or REITs or you know a host of different things that can be done. There's there's no one solution. And you're right. The the wealthy have access to better advisors because better advisors cost more. So right. you know most most people couldn't afford to pay them, but. You know, the Internet is a wonderful thing. Absolutely. If you look 20, 20 years ago, I mean, it was you could probably had to go to the library to find these things. I, I don't even remember that far back. <laughs> yeah. But if, you know, right now with the Internet, you can find the answers to most of this stuff. This is, it's available online. You may not be able to easily find a, an attorney that can craft the perfect contract for you that will get you, to, you know, what you want. But, um you know, there are rules that anybody can find. And, you know, the way that our tax code is structured obviously benefits the rich to some extent, even though they do pay higher taxes. Um, but the benefits are there because they pay higher taxes. I, I, don't, I'm so, sorry. I don't buy that. Every, and if you can prove that to me, I know that's the politically correct thing to say. But if you can prove that to me, I'll buy it. But every single loophole in the tax code benefits the poor. The entire thing is structured to benefit the poor. And, I mean, I, I, I can't find, I, I'm not an expert at tax, but I've been studying it and studying it and studying it and studying it. And all I find is exactly the same law applied to every class, uh, to every income class, or extra benefits to, to low-income earners. I mean, <laughs> do, do you see something Agreed. different than I do? 
No, I, I, I would agree with you, um, although I will point out that I think you were the first person to ever call me politically correct. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been accused of that before. That's the one thing I could say is probably low on the list. <laughs> um, but no, I, I would agree with you. I, I think that um, every everything is available to everybody. There's, there's, there's nothing saying that unless you make this amount of money, you can't participate in this. It's it's a lot of this is um, attributable to scale, and I think one of the unfortunate parts about our country is our our media tends to exaggerate things to get a reaction out of people, mm-hmm. which doesn't need to be there. So, for instance, taking a fact of you know this amount of people, um, uh, you know I, I'm trying to remember the fact it was maybe like. Uh, Probably the last election, because that's just when this stuff comes up. Um, they were looking at what percentage of the population pays what percentage of taxes. Right. And they said, well, you know, the 5% of the population pays like 85% of the taxes, or whatever it was. But it, when you actually dig into the numbers and look at what they're saying, it's not really true. What they're doing is, is taking one point, blowing it out of proportion, and, and people just eat it up. They just assume it's true. They don't bother to research it and look through it and say, well, actually, it's not true based on this, this, and this. So I, I do agree with you. I think opportunity is available to everybody, and it really comes down to people who are um, smart enough and um, have enough tenacity to go look for these things. You know, and as I said, the Internet is a wonderful thing. You, right. It's there. It's, it's there as a resource tool. I mean, there's a lot of garbage out there, but there's certainly a lot of great information. I mean, the IRS has everything online, you know, the... University of Cornell has all of the tax, all of the laws online. I mean, the information is there. Right. You know, it's, it's not hidden from people. You can easily find this stuff. You don't even have to go to a library anymore. So, yeah. I, I, you know, the tax code is certainly not my forte. I mean, we know the areas that we specialize in, but, you know, there's there's a lot of areas that, that people get paid very good money to to be experts in. And, and you know, that's... That's what experts are for, right? right. They specialize, and they're there to um, you know to help people want certain things in that area. You know, I don't mind having a good debate with somebody over a certain policy objective, but I can't stand it when a debate is predicated based on lies. And that's what I find yep. so frustrating is that we have a majority of our population, and this is my data, not anything I'm citing, a majority of our population is massively ignorant when it comes to tax law. I have asked hundreds of people, how much did you pay in income tax last year? And the vast majority of them immediately say, oh, I got back, you know, uh, about $500. I say, no, how much did you pay in income tax last year? Oh, I I don't know. And I have not yet met in the the years that I've been doing, the hundreds of people I've talked to, I've not yet met the employee and the business owners know this number, but the employee that can tell me how much of their paycheck on a percentage basis is deducted for their employment taxes. And, and so like when you're wandering away and you, so you, you lose seven and a half, 7.65% of your income as an employee right off the top. And you don't even know what that number is. And we're all bickering about how do I get a 2% raise? You're losing 7.65% of your income right off the top to support the social programs that half of us will never have the full benefit that is promised. And some half of us might have some benefit. 
like we just have massive ignorance. So then Warren Buffett comes out. Oh, I pay less in tax than my secretary. Baloney. It's absolute. It's it's nonsense. So if you want to come out and actually start with facts that aren't. Uh, that, that are facts and we're dealing with an actual straightforward argument, then we can argue about what we should do or what we should not do. But when you start with lies, you never get anywhere good. So as you could tell, I care a little bit about this one. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I, I tend to agree with you. And I think, unfortunately, most people are zombies with most things in their life. And I see this with investing where I ask what somebody's invested and they say, oh, I made 5% last year. I said, no, what are you invested in? Right. Well, I don't know. It's some sort of fund of sorts. <laughs> I have no idea. And, you know, I mean, getting back to your Warren Buffett comment, I I find that, uh, I, I find him a very intriguing individual because I think maybe 10, 15 years ago, he was a lot more respectable in many many ways, but right. in the last 10 years, I, I've actually just kind of gotten disgusted with him because he's he's somebody who's made something of himself, and he, you know, he's a very intelligent guy, and I don't take anything away from his savviness, and I think, quite frankly, his company has gotten so big, he needs to get political favors to get good deals because Absolutely. he just can't invest in small things, so I get that, but what I don't agree with is the fact that, you know, for somebody to come out there and just be the poster boy for why we need higher taxes, when actually within the last few years, I don't know if you're aware of this, but prior to a few years ago, you could not give more money than you owed. The IRS would give it back to you. Now you can actually give more. They have a spot there, um, and I haven't, I haven't seen this, I forget what it says, but it basically says if you want to help reduce our government deficit, right. please click here on the amount you want to give. I tell Warren Buffett, great, you should give more money. Right. If you feel that badly about not make not paying enough taxes, you should pay more. Of course, you know that that wouldn't go well with the with the poster boy. But um, you know, I, I think it's there's certainly a lot of truth to that. You know, with the carried interest and you know fund managers and the way they they make profits. But you know, the tax code is created, and people take advantage of certain parts of the tax code, and then they change it. I don't know if you remember the, the limited partnership era. Um, now that was before actually, my time. Yeah, it was actually on my Series 7 exam when I had taken it, when I first started. Even though this had changed like 10 years prior, they still had it on the exam as if we had to understand it. Um, but there was a time when um, the limited partnerships offered uh, significant benefits, uh, similar to the MLPs now, mm-hmm. where there weren't restrictions. So the Boston Celtics actually signed up to be a, a, a limited partnership. And because the tax benefits are so great that so many companies were doing it that they actually had to change the rules because people found the, you know, the, the little area in the tax code and started taking advantage of it. So they, you know, they said, all right, <laughs> we need some more taxes, so we're going to change the rules again. Um, and, you know, that happens, and it, it's, it's part of part of our country and how we work with our, um, you know, with the tax code, and it's always changing. And, and I, I do remember back in when I first started contributing to IRAs when I was a teenager, um, you know, back then, there was, the tax code didn't change that much. It's only in the last 10 years that it's changed. I mean, it almost changes multiple times a year now. Absolutely. It's, uh, sometimes it's hard to keep up with. I mean, 
you know, people ask, but I always have to look up because I'm afraid they change something on me. <laughs> I recorded a show, and I've got one more comment on, on this tax thing, and I want to get back to some of the practical details because i got a couple questions still I want to explore. But I recorded a show recently, and it was end-of-the-year tax planning uh, ideas. And I was, it was a, the December 15th, something like that. And I carefully planned yep. out my outline. I carefully checked. And the one thing I wanted to check was that they had the expanded expense allowance where normally, what is it? I hate doing stuff off the top of my head. I think it's, you can usually expense up to $25,000 of, uh, of, of, of uh, things that normally would be depreciable, you can expense uh, up to $25,000 under a Section 179 uh, deduction. But then they expanded it to be uh, $500,000 for the last couple of years. Now, that's a massive uh, growth in, that's a massive um, difference for a business owner to be able to expense half a million bucks of equipment uh, instead of having to depreciate it. That's a major, major deal. So I carefully research out everything, and I, I got my, 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 my outline. I'm doing my best to provide accurate information, but I'm one guy. I'm, I sit here and do these things. I don't have a, a research department backing me up. So I researched this, and one of the things I checked was I said, is this law still $25,000? And it was. So I go and record the show, and the day I record the show, two weeks before the end of the calendar year, Congress passes a bill extending the half a million dollar uh, expense allowance. And that is so incredibly frustrating, not only for those of us who are trying to give accurate, careful tax advice or, or financial advice, but just what do you do if a business owner, you spend 11 and a half months of your year trying to figure out how do I invest in the, in, in the equipment from my bi of my business. And you have these Congress clowns that two weeks before the end of the calendar year make a difference on the magnitude of scale from 25000 to half a million dollars of expense allowance. Like that is the most juvenile, irresponsible way to run a country. It's, it's, it's absolutely embarrassing, in my opinion. <laughs> you mean like hitting the debt ceiling and then raising it because uh, <laughs> the debt's too high? It's, <laughs> You're responsible it, like that? <laughs> yeah, it is embarrassing. It is absolutely embarrassing. So we'll get off our, our, our political rant. But, like, it just... That one, those things do frustrate me. And, and I can't... People immediately go to politics. And, again... Let's have a debate about what we should do, but make it an accurate debate. Don't premise it on 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 flat out lies. Otherwise, we're we're, we're done for. Um, I want to ask you about this checkbook LLC thing because of a planning op planning idea, and I'm and I I need to know the answer. I've I haven't been able to find the answer. I found a few people on the internet, and I'm I've been hesitant to cite any of them because I'm not sure of their actual authority, so I haven't shared those resources. But with the idea of being able to set up a checkbook uh, LLC, uh, an LLC with checkbook control, and then being able to establish some of the tax-deferred accounts, including uh, a self-directed retirement account of some sort, and an ESA, and an HSA, and being able to invest in your assets, uh, invest in your whatever it is that you're trying to invest in with that specific uh, LLC upon which, again, which you have checkbook writing privileges. So in essence, you're able to split your investment. If I'm doing something like a investing in rental houses, I'm able to allocate a portion to each of those accounts. I know you can't commingle the, uh, how do I put this in accurate language? I know you can't commingle 
necessarily in investments unless it's part of this, the same fund. But can I approach something like that if I have assets in those different accounts? Is it possible that I can just set up one firm through which I'm making my investments and own member units in each of those accounts? Um, so this gets into a really complicated area, but... Um, you didn't expect a lay-down question, did you? Come on, this is the Radical Personal Finance Show. <laughs> no, no. What, what, I, what, yeah, what, <laughs> what, I, what I mean by that is, is there are a lot of parts of the working with a self-directed IRA that get to be um, situational dependent. So, for instance, um, I could tell you one thing, and then you know, you missed a you missed a piece of information and all of a sudden my answer is different. So I'll right. give you an example. So you can I think what you're asking, if I understand you correctly, is about co investing. So you can um, so generally speaking, if I own a piece of real estate, my IRA cannot buy it from me. Right. And I cannot buy that piece of real estate if my IRA owns it. So I cannot trade with myself. Um, however there's a way that you can co-invest. So if you had, um, if you were looking to invest a hundred thousand dollars in a piece of real estate and you were to invest, let's say 50% in your taxable money and 50% from your IRA, mm -hmm. uh, you could do that if it's done instantaneously at the closing. So it, it gets into an area that's, you know, it's hard to give broad-based advice because it's it's very particular. Um, but it, it is something that is, you are allowed to do it. Um, it is something you you potentially could do. It could make sense. Um, however, I, I think the rule is that you, <laughs> uh, the funny parts about these, some of these things don't make sense to me, but um, you can co-invest, but only if you don't need the money. <laughs> so, if you need, if you don't need the money, why would you put it outside? Why would you co-invest? But yet, you, if you don't need the money, that's the the requirement. So there's there's little things like that that it gets kind of tricky. But um, you know, as well as the same, if you're if you're talking about um, like right now, we're doing a few complicated transactions between multiple parties. Um, you know, when it comes down to ownership and control, so some of that gets a little tricky too, and and, and dependent, but. I think if you're, the question I think you have to ask yourself is, why do you want to um, mix mix them together? And I think that's really the question you'd have to have to answer because, um, you know, generally speaking, it's cleaner if you don't, and it certainly makes life easier probably for you if it comes down to it. Um, but you know, I guess the question would be, why would you want to? Why would you want to do that? Let me clarify. And if it if this is a non-issue, that's fine. I've just been thinking this through, and I've wanted wondered the answer. And anytime I I think of a, a scenario, I try to figure out like how could I figure out the answer. And I don't know the answer to this one. So let me let me let me give you a specific scenario. And none I I recognize. And there's a disclaimer at the end of the show. We're just talking generalities, and any of this could be wrong. You have to look. And anyone who listens to this show on a regular basis knows I can. I can show all the different individual things that matter. You have to look at an individual situation. But here's my scenario. Uh, so pretend I am skilled at investing in real estate, whether I'm writing private mortgages or, or rental houses or whatever. 
and I have a uh, an IRA with four hundred thousand uh, dollars of cash in it. I have a Coverdell educational savings account with fifty thousand dollars of cash in it, and I have a uh, a health savings account with fifty thousand dollars of cash in it. The idea is I establish an LLC, and this LLC has 10 member units. Eight of those member units are held by the IRA. One member unit is held by the ESA, and one member unit is held by the HSA. And now this LLC is going around West Palm Beach, Florida, and buying and selling rental houses. And then one-tenth of the of the uh, profits are flowing through to the ESA, one-tenth is flowing through to the HSA, and eight-tenths is flowing through to the IRA. And my the reason for that is with some of those accounts where it's difficult to get more money in there, such as an ESA, when I've got a $2,000 annual contribution limit, then perhaps this is a way to gain from some of my business ventures and have but without having to do everything and figuring out how do I buy this property with the $6,000 I have in my ESA. Conceptually, could my idea work? I mean, I don't, I don't see any issue with that. Um, I mean, I, I think there's, there's probably some subtleties that, that we'd have to discuss, but I, I don't sure. think there's, uh, there should be an issue with that. Um, I mean, generally speaking, you have to look at your IRAs as the same. I mean, even though there's separate accounts, you can... You can, you know, you can split them up. There's, mm-hmm. there's no reason why you could. Um, but they're they're technically separate. But you know, it's from a uh, from different perspectives, it's really considered the same. Um, and I know some people actually will deliberately have a separate account for for each investment from a liability perspective. So another point, which I think makes sense to to mention, is. If you have, um, let's say, a piece of real estate, and you know, it's some people put each piece of real estate into a separate LLC, for instance, that's their way of protection, uh, which I think is, you know, smart. <clears throat> but it's in, a in lot an of IRA, paperwork. <laughs> oh yeah, I would hate to do that. But, you know, if it's big enough, it's worthwhile. It's, right. You know, if it's a good return, that uh, I'll, you know, pay somebody to do the paperwork. It better be big enough. Um, yeah, it'd have to be big enough. Um, but I think that some people, if they're concerned about, let's say, a prohibited transaction or liabilities, they would separate it out into a separate IRA so that if there was an issue, your your liability would be limited to that IRA and it wouldn't flow through to other investments. Right. Uh, so it's it's not something I would necessarily suggest because it's a logistical nightmare, but um, depending on what the concerns are, there there are different ways to... Uh, insulate yourself from from liability in that way. Um, but if you're trying to spread the risk, I don't see any issue why you wouldn't. I mean, I've I've done that personally with some of mine. We invested in a coffee company and uh, invested through multiple different entities, and that's that's that wasn't an issue. So yeah. um, unless there's something that's you know you haven't told me about it, it shouldn't be a problem. Yeah. It's kind of an interesting scenario, and I just give it as, I'm sure there are even more interesting ideas and creative ways to do it, but that's just a, a scenario that I've thought of that I know a number of people uh, to whom that could apply. And I, I really think, I mean, if you're going to get involved, I don't know, my opinion, 
if you're going to get involved in this level of complexity, adding it to your life, I think you've got to be swinging for the fences. Uh, meaning, what's the point of <laughs> what's the point of a tax deferral? I think a lot about scale, and uh, and when you can, if you've got a, let's assume that you have a capital gains tax rate at twenty percent, and so if on the one hand you can invest and you can hold an entity where you have total privacy, you don't have the IRS knowing exactly how much money is in your IRA every year and exactly what assets are in there, and you can deal with it at a twenty percent capital gains tax rate, and you can control your tax liability based upon uh, not triggering, you know, the sale, or if you have, if you're dealing in something like real estate and you can, you've got enough depreciation lined up, you've got enough tax, uh, like kind exchanges lined up, you can set up things to take advantage of an, of a uh, tax, you know, a step up in basis at death to transfer assets. Like those things are a lot easier to me than figuring out how do I put this rental property into my, uh, Coverdell ESA. But if you have an investment opportunity like Peter Thiel did with Facebook or like Mitt Romney did, and you can really take advantage of the tax-structured account for a real massive return, then it's worth going through the complexity of maybe it might be worth going through the complexity of, of, of setting these things up. Well, after, my, uh, after my ESA show, I did kind of a master class on Coverdell Educational Savings Account. And I had a listener write to me that has unique uh, industry insight and at the moment is not permitted to invest in this uh, type of investment due to the listener's uh, occupation. But they're going to be leaving, and they'll be able to invest and have some in, in, some interest in doing uh, early stage speculative biotech stocks. And we talked about it, and, and the question was, you know, is an ESA appropriate for that? In that in that in that scenario, I said, yeah, it's worth it because you have a potential massive return on a relatively small amount of capital. So it might it can be worth dealing with the complexities. I think you got to apply, you know always keep things as simple as possible and make sure that if you're going to go through a bunch of hoops that it's actually worth it. Am I right? I, I would agree 110%. I think that, you know, when we look at alternatives, you know, I'm not looking at investing in an alternative, adding complexity. I mean, diversification is important, and I think that's still one of the most important things and actually one of the reasons why we started the firm outside of the self-directed is, is try to get true diversification. Right. You know, investing in different stocks and bonds and mutual funds, that, that's not really diversification. Uh, we actually wrote a paper about 10 years ago about that and, uh, you know, pointed out that in bull markets, diversification works. But you don't need it in a bull market. Right. In bear markets, it doesn't work. <laughs> and that's what you need. It. Right. So if you, were in, if you were invested in 2008, unless you were in gold, bonds, or cash, right. you pretty much lost about 35,000, uh, 35%, give or take, you know, three or 4%. Everything was down. So, you know, it's important to, um, to consider that in the overall um, aspect of, of investing. Now, that being said, investing in alternatives, um, one of the benefits of doing things the way that we do it, and I'll give you an example, you, you pointed out scale, um, you know, getting a $100 million IRA is hard, not because you can't get the returns, but because of the scale. The same way Warren Buffett can't get, you know, he, he even says this. He says if he had only $100 million, you could probably make 50% a year. Right. The scale becomes a problem when you're too large. 
but when you're small, you can easily take advantage of some things. Like, for instance, I'll give you one secret that I think your listeners will appreciate. So I came across this individual uh, when we first started the company. And we were at a conference and we were talking, and this guy flips homes. So he'll walk up, uh, he'll find a deal, he'll lock it up, and he'll wholesale it to somebody else. He'll put up maybe 100 or $1,000 to lock up the property, and then he'll flip it for twenty, thirty, you know, sometimes $40,000. Mm-hmm. So he's taking $100 and turning into 40000 I mean, that's tremendous, uh, you know, growth right. and, and off of a very small amount of money. And you can do that with an IRA, and that's, that's the kind of thing we like, is when people want to think creatively like that, think, how can we take a little money and turn it into a lot of money right. and do it in a tax-deferred account so that it's, it's, it, it's, um, it's done feasibly? Now, obviously, this guy had a million dollars. He couldn't make the same returns. Mm-hmm. But I think if, if, you under, if you have an, something you're good at, you understand it well, and you understand the risk, I think it makes sense to try to take advantage of the tax deferral nature of it. Um, you know, because and, and, I think, you know, if you're going to buy and hold Johnson Johnson for 20 years, that's great. Mm-hmm. And you'll probably do really well. Um, we aspire to the shareholder yield concept of, of, of dividend investing. And mm-hmm. I, I think that over time has actually shown to be one of the best investment strategies. Uh, <clears throat> but that's a long time you can take advantage of other things in a shorter amount of time and things that you're, like I said, you're an expert in. If you're, if you're buying and selling properties and you know that you can sell something quick for 10,000, you, you know, you take a little bit out of your IRA, lock it up and then, and then flip it. Right. Um, and I think, you know, if people, you know, in many cases, I, I will warn people if they're thinking of doing that, you don't, you don't sign up the offer in your own name because otherwise you can't do it. You know, with the contract, it has to explicitly state that the IRA is signing it, not you. Mm-hmm. Um, as with all documentation, it's very important that people, that the individual uh, IRA account owner never signs anything. The custodian always signs documents. And if the owner ever signs a document, that could potentially create a prohibited transaction. So um, they should be aware of that. But I think you're right. The scale is, is very important. Um, you know, if you're going to invest in a self-directed IRA for 6%, um, you know, given the deflationary environment that we're in, that could actually be a good rate of return. But <laughs> I, I think ideally you don't want to shoot for that. You probably want to aim a little higher if you can. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm with you there. That leads me perfectly to kind of the one of the last, uh, I guess, question basically that I had, which is I'd love your insight into custodians and the people that are involved in someone in this type of transaction. Most people are not aware of the, I guess, the parties that need to be involved in a 401k. Most people, if you say many people who are employees, uh, if you say, okay, TPA, what's a TPA? Uh, what, what's a custodian? What do you what do you refer? What are you talking about? So, could you walk through the major parties that are involved in a self directed account? Let's just stick with a self directed IRA, and then how you find those different people. And, for example, we mentioned one of the things that's tough is how do you find a custodian who's willing to work with a health savings account? So, 
who are the parties that are involved and to what extent can you get this get people out of it and to what extent do you have to hire these these different roles done to follow the rules okay so the first person um, so if you want to open up a self-directed IRA um, you have to find a custodian and we have a, actually a good piece of, of choosing a self-directed custodian because I think it's an important component that is um, it's not the terminology Terminology is not clear in a lot of the advertising and marketing that people do. So, just to put it simply, there there are brokerage firms which more or less you know buy and sell stock. It's the easiest way to describe it. Um, there are custodians which custody assets. A brokerage firm can also be a custodian, but rather than confusing their listeners, I'll just keep it separate. Mm-hmm. So, a custodian would be um, the type of firm that would hold. They would custody the IRA account, um, and they would hold all the assets that are there. They do the record keeping. They they deal with the, the tax component of it, um, you know, at least send you the tax statements anyway. Um, but they deal with that component. So a, a custodian is a very important part of the equation. Um, there are also what are called um, um, there are facilitators, um, and then there are... Um, I'm trying to blank here. Um, there are TPAs. So TPA stands for Third Party Administrator. Oh, yes, yeah, sorry, Third Party Administrator. So there are custodians, administrators, and facilitators. Um, the custodians is the necessary piece of the puzzle. Administrators are a group of um, firms, and there are quite a few out there, and they typically advertise the gold IRA or the real estate IRA or the checkbook LLC. They're, they have their, their marketing pieces. Um, but effectively, what they do is they they add as a middle they act as a middleman between the client and the custodian. So what they'll do, they'll go find a custodian, usually a bank, and the bank will agree to custody assets, and the administrator will provide all the administrative services. Um, the custodian, or at least the larger custodians, do all of this. You don't need an administrator for these custodians, but they. These, uh, the TPA is effectively create a, uh, it's not a qualified custodian in the sense that some others are. Like, I'll give you, for instance, some of the, the larger uh, self-directed IRA custodians are Pensco Trust Company, Equity Trust Company, Millennium Trust Company. Those are some of the larger three. There are some others, but those are kind of well-known. What was the first um, one you said? Because it broke up just a little bit. So you said Equity Trust oh, Company, sorry. Millennium Trust Company, and the first one was... Uh, Pensco Trust Company. Pensco, P-E-N-S-C-O? Yes. Okay. Um, and there's actually a lot of consolidation going on in the industry. I know Pensco just acquired Lincoln Trust Company, and a few years back, Equity Trust Company acquired Sterling Trust Company. And Sterling specialized in precious metals. <clears throat> so there is some uh, consolidation going on in the industry, but those are the major players. And I think that there are a number of things that people have to when they look at each, because um, there are a lot of components, it's not just about the fees, it's also about the service, about the expertise, and, you know, the um, the, customer, the customer service, what I mean, is, is they're, they're prompt and they get back to you and they're knowledgeable. I think that's, that's important. Um, and then there's facilitators, which are kind of a hodgepodge. Um, they don't really fit in the administrator or custodian bucket. They're just people that work with 
self-directed IRAs, and I honestly couldn't give you an accurate definition of what they do. <laughs> I can just tell you that they exist. <laughs> How's that for a ringing endorsement? <laughs> I, I, I won't call anybody out, but it's just they, they exist, and they're not bad. They're not good. They're just they're there, and I, I couldn't accurately describe them. <laughs> Um, but I think that the so in setting up a self-directed IRA the individual would go to one of these firms they would set up the IRA and then they would work with that firm they'd find the asset and that firm would work with them to purchase the asset to manage it to sell it Um, that's the simple way to do it now there are there is a requirement which there is funny because there there are a lot of IRA rules which apply to every single IRA whether it's the self-directed type or not. You know, if you have a brokerage account, it's also required. But because of the nature of a brokerage account, most of it is it is not you don't see the, the needs. So one is evaluation. You're required to get an annual evaluation on all alternative assets. Um, so that is a requirement. It could be a problem depending on the asset you're invested in. Um, for instance, some assets are easy, like a real estate investment is, you know, you can look at a broker's um, uh, you know, broker's opinion or competitive market analysis, so you can look at a few different ways. Um, but there are some gray areas around the valuation in, in, uh, that are, the IRS has not made entirely clear. One is, um, is it a, what is required? Is it, is, it quali- is it a qualified valuation or a just a regular, you know, CPA's opinion? Right. Okay. Um, they, they haven't made it clear. They, I know they kind of prefer it one way, but the case law is unclear. So it's hard to say. I think a lot of people have taken the stance of it's okay not to go through the really expensive qualified appraisal um, as long as you're not going through any significant um, quote-unquote events. You know, like if you if you're taking distributions or if you're you know inherit the IRA or something that that might uh, prompt a qualified appraisal. But generally speaking, most assets I think you could get away without getting the, the true qualified. Um, but I don't want to give you that as advice because, like I said, it's unclear. Right, and right. Most most people are not standing strong on that. They're just kind of hoping for a direction from the IRS at this point. Yeah. Um, so the valuation is, is important. Um, like I said, some assets are harder to value than others. Um, but that's that's an important component. So, uh, But outside of that, I, I, that's pretty much it. I mean, you know, they should also find an attorney or accountant that is knowledgeable of this area. We find that most are aware of it, but they're not as knowledgeable as they should be. And not because they're not smart people, but because it's not a common thing. Unless the attorney or accountant specializes in this area, they're not going to have enough day-to-day experience to be up on all the rules and, and regulations and case law. Um, because most people I talk to, they say, yeah, I had one person in 20 years asked me about it. And right. So there's no reason for them to stay up to date. But there are there are lists around that people can find, and custodians provide these lists of, of people that are qualified that uh, that do specialize in this area. So I think it's important to have one that understands this, uh, because it is such an, a niche area that when it comes to you know tax preparation, like for instance, it is possible that you would have to file a tax return for your IRA. Right. And most people are not aware of that, but that could be a requirement depending on what you're investing in. Um, 
another thing that they another reason to have a qualified accountant is it is possible you would have to pay taxes on the investment inside of your IRA. Um, usually that comes down to if you're using leverage. Um, the leverage portion is, is potentially taxable. So there are, there, there are some subtleties that people have to understand, but in the IRA it's a lot simpler. With a 401k it's more complicated because you, you really should use a TPA. You really should use um, a custodian that, that you know, works with 401ks. Um, you know, you have other components of, of the puzzle. If you're investing in precious metals, you have to find a, a, a depository. You have to find a, a dealer to buy the, you know, the coins or the metals from. So depending on the asset, there, there may be other um, components or vendors in the equation that, that have to be added. But for IRAs, it's generally a lot simpler. Yeah, this is one of those areas where I think I would definitely. This is as, this is definitely as deep as I want to go on the show, and it's one of those things where I wanted to make I wanted to make people aware of kind of some general input. And when we ran into each other at FinCon, I thought, and this has been great as far as just a good overview. But you need good advice here. Don't don't play games here, and if don't try to save a buck. There's so much shady stuff on the internet. And I would get multiple, me personally, I would get multiple opinions and I would want to work with people who specialize in this. And that's what I love about the world we live in in 2015 as compared to even, like you said, when you joined Payne Weber in 99. I mean, in 99, it seemed like it was so much more difficult to have a specialized presence. You had to be all things to all people. I mean, you probably started cold calling and you just you it, you're just talking the general to everybody else. But now with the ability to get your message out and it takes time and it takes work, then people can specialize and you can have specialty firms, specialty accountants, uh, someone like you, a specialty advisor, a specialty fiduciary uh, who can who can work. And the key is for the right clients to find the right providers. But I would not try to save money if I were doing on this. I wouldn't do it myself if I didn't have substantial. Like, if you've got five thousand bucks in an IRA, don't waste your time. Go and I would say go and go and make some money. Or or you better have like a thousand percent, uh, <laughs> a thousand fold potential investment, and then you and you know it, and you're trying to to do something. But I would I would expect fees are high. Uh, I would expect you need someone who's an expert, and make sure you pay for good advice. Uh, I mean that. Do you do you agree? Am I right? I would agree. I would definitely agree with that. I mean, depending on the amount of assets, it could range between one and three percent for you know custodians if they're fee based. Um, you know, if you've got five thousand dollars, the percentage is you know maybe upwards of three percent. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's people look at that and say, "Wow, that's high," but it's not really. It's, oh, that's it's nothing. Really, I, I, yeah, I can't imagine you would take. I wouldn't. I mean, if I were in your business, there's not a chance in the world I'd take a five thousand dollar account, uh, unless unless there were <laughs> unless there were five million somewhere sitting there. Uh, it's just, I mean, we got to be realistic here. That's why I, I try to shoot straight on the show, and you got to be realistic uh, about. We're all in business. We got to make money. We got to make money, and there's got to be a good fit between client and 
and service provider and you know doing all the work and, and exposing yourself to the liability for $150, 3% of $5,000. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, would, I would agree. I mean, it's, it's, you know, from our perspective, I mean, we're not, we're not looking for, you know, small clients. I mean, that's, we, we, you know, most advisors, their business is very scalable. They buy one mutual fund over right, 200 right. clients and it takes them five seconds. They have to research it, but, you know, the process takes five seconds. If I were to buy one piece of real estate for one client, it could take us days. Right. You know, to go to the registry, file the documents, it's, you know, it's, it's complicated. So we, you know, the way I look at it is because we are really the only advisors doing this, um, it's, if people call us or you know, email us, I'll, I'll, I'll always point them in the right direction if it's not a good fit. Um, you know, from my perspective, everything has to be a personality fit. Like, I won't work with jerks. So right. Somebody calls me up and they, they start, you know, treating me like, <laughs> you know, like a jerk right on the phone. I'd say, sorry, <laughs> it's not a good fit. But, you know, we come across a lot of people who have, you know, less than an optimal amount. No, it's just, you know, just giving some general advice to say, look, here's, what, here's how you should do it. Here's what you should do. Um, you know, you should probably get an accountant or attorney to, to help you with this because, you know, they'll at least give you some guidance. But, um, you know, for the most part, it's, um, you know, it definitely needs to be of a reasonable amount of money to make it worthwhile for us and for them. Right. Um, you know, it's, uh, it has to make sense. So, you know, I think that's, um, that's, you know, I mean, it's, as you, as you said before, it's something that is different. It's worthwhile, but it doesn't fit every situation. You know, you shouldn't try to fit a square peg in a round hole. It's just, um, you know, if somebody has 2000 or $5,000 and, and they're not getting multiples return on something, then, you know, they should save up more right. and, and wait. And I'll, I'll be the bad guy for you, and I, I do want to give you a chance to plug your service and explain, kind of give your elevator pitch, um, and hopefully maybe you'll be a good fit for, for somebody in the listening audience. You could be a resource for them. Um, but I'll be, the, I'll be the bad guy so you don't have to do it. Two things. Number one is remember, apply the lens of scale, like I talk about on the show constantly. If you've got $5,000 saved... There's not a chance in the world that, A, you should even have an IRA, unless it's a Roth IRA and that's just your emergency fund and you're just you know a super brilliant 16-year-old <laughs> setting aside money in a Roth IRA from an early age. Uh, if the, the, the percentage of impact that you can make to try to invest in you know the difference between 10% in an index fund versus 35% rate of returns is absolutely meaningless uh, when you have returns that when you have an account that that's small, at least in one or two or three years. So a much better plan is focus on something where you can increase your income by 20, 30, 50, $100,000 and save that money. So instead of 5,000, you have 105,000. So don't spend your time trying to figure out how do I increase my percentage rate of return when that's not the best use of your time. Number two, on, on amounts of money that small, you're far better turned, and I'm using it just simply as a metaphor, you're far better off spending time uh, setting up the right business structure or you know taking the right deductions on starting something that's actually going to make you some money. Now over time, you do transition to a point where an extra uh, a, you know an extra two, three, four, five, 20 uh, percent return annually is going to make a massive difference. but 
focus on where you are and don't and recognize that at some day you'll be the big fish but you've got to increase your income and build a business so that you have large amounts of money to where then you can use it in a creative way that would be my point one thing two would be don't if if, you, if you're interested in this kind of stuff and if you're the kind of person if you're looking to do something shady just simply don't 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 invite the most public <laughs> don't invite scrutiny in the most public uh, of any investment you can make, which is going to be in one of these accounts. Uh, so don't don't call uh, don't uh, don't call Kirk and say, "Hey, Kirk, I've got this shady deal." If you're looking to do something in a straightforward way and just simply use the laws that exist, then that would be, uh, uh, I would say, a good fit. So hopefully that'll screen a few people if, if anyone can use your services. Kirk, plug what you guys do. Give us your elevator pitch of who you can serve effectively uh, or at least the type of, uh, of things that you're able to offer. Okay, great. Um, yeah, and I, I couldn't say, I couldn't have said it better. Um, I, I will reiterate one point that you made is, um, is in understanding the rules, um, definitely do not try to break them. You are not smarter than the IRS. Right. Believe me, I've seen many cases, and what people have tried to do, just don't do it. Right. <laughs> I wouldn't try to do it. I, I don't think anybody should, because you will get caught, and it'll be in a place that you will not be happy with. So uh, definitely don't do it. So I guess in a, in a transition to us, um, my firm, Innovative Advisor Group, uh, we are a innovative wealth management firm uh, in basically bridging the gap between traditional and non-traditional investments, although we've talked a lot about alternative investments on the show. We also do a lot with traditional assets in a innovative way. Um, risk management is a, is a cornerstone to what we do. I think that's probably the most important thing that we um, we tell people and our clients is risk management comes first. Don't look at what returns you're going to get. Look at what you're going to lose. And if you can deal with that, then the returns will take care of themselves. So that is a, a very important point that anybody should uh, should consider with their investments. So with our services, we we do uh, we provide financial planning services for our clients. We manage assets for them. Um, like I said, both traditional and alternative. Uh, we specialize in self-directed IRAs and self-directed 401ks. Uh, in, in both the, uh, we assist with the structuring. We are not attorneys or accountants, um, but we do work with your attorney and accountants because, in many cases, they're not familiar with all of the necessities. So we will work with them to make sure that it's um, it's as it should be. Um, we can also act as a special advisor and custodians if you're not interested in having us um, necessarily manage the assets but would like us you wanted to do a checkbook LLC and needed um, a special advisor which is a requirement now um, on that checkbook LLC then we can we can assist in that fashion too um, and we also do uh, strategic consulting if you will so that's kind of more of a hodgepodge we do on special projects that People need an outside-the-box thinker to to work on a strategy, whether it's self-directed or otherwise. Um, you know, we have a a, a varied set of uh, of background and interests, both my partner and I. So um, it, that I think is something we can offer too. So, you know, if you're if you're interested um, in learning more about self-directed IRAs or any of the other subjects we had discussed on the show, um, 
we have a website. It's innovativewealth.com. And we also have a blog. This is um, something we have once a week. Uh, we have a, a post. And uh, so we try to put as many resources on the site. There's a number of things we're going to be putting up in the next month, which are also going to be valuable, like a list of uh, IRA custodians, administrators, and facilitators. Uh, we should have that up shortly. Um, and a few other things that I think people will benefit from. Um, one last point I'll mention is we have a new service called the Inflation Monitor on the blog. It's free, um, but we created it to help measure inflation, and so people can accurately not just look at the CPI and say, oh, we have this amount of inflation, but actually see the effects of inflation on, on the economy rather than just looking at a number which some people think may not be necessarily accurate. Um, so that's a, a new service we've offered. It's, it's, we're tweaking a little bit, but I think it's been very helpful to, to a lot of people. So Fun. I want to check that out as well. Yeah, I'll make sure uh, I'll make sure there's links to innovativewealth.com and to the blog uh, in the show notes. Uh, hey, and then there, all your info is there, the contact info is, and everything is there. Uh, last question as you go. Uh, any insight, comments, opinion on, I mean, it's been a year now, but since you're so involved in this self-directed uh, IRA scenario, on the proposal last year in the president's budget proposal for the $3.4 million cap, uh, do you have an opinion or comment on that issue? Well, you're certainly not going to get a politically correct answer on this. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I, I think that <clears throat> getting back to the, and, and I think this was um, some of this done from the uh, the Romney IRA when people, um, Dave, there's been some subtle movement in the, the political background. A, well, people have heard about it and they're upset where the, the government wants to, um, let's just say, take people's retirement funds and give them treasuries instead, or they want to cap the amount you can have in an IRA saying that you don't need more than that. Right. I, I think the day we start doing that is the day that, well, I shouldn't say the day that capitalism dies, because I think it's already slowly dying, but um, I, I think the, the reality is that if you're not incentivized to get whatever you want to get, and if that's $100 million, great. If it's you want to own a new car, fine. But if you're not allowed to do that, then you're really, you're really killing capitalism because that's what drives people. What drives people is the ability to do better, the people to be better, and to, you know, better society. And, and I think if, you know, if you don't allow people to do that, then you're really, um, you know, really changing the dynamic. So having a cap on an IRA, I mean, looking at, Looking at the numbers just from the, uh, the GAO um, report, it should be fairly obvious that there are not a lot of people who who fit that that bill. I mean, over three million dollars. You're talking about thirty-six thousand people who right. have over three million dollars in their IRA. Uh, I, you know, these people didn't get there because they just got lucky. Right. They got there because they did the right things. They invested right. They saved. Um, you know, they took advantage of the tax code as it was, and I, I applaud them. I, you know, I think they've they've done what they should have done. There's plenty of people who are bad investors who lose money because they don't pay attention, don't know what they're doing. Um, and I think that you know, we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't rain on the parade of the people who are successful, but rather try to bring the rest up to meet them. 
Yeah, it's interesting, and certainly I don't uh, I don't disagree with you from how it should be. This is a tough issue for me. I'm still pretty conservative. I'm not too worried about it, but I'll tell you what is, and I've been open on the show. I'm, I'm, it's a research project of mine to try to figure things out. I've generally looked at it and said, there's not a chance of this stuff happening because it's hard for me to imagine, uh, you know, you change the IRA rules, you start taxing IRAs, you start taxing 401ks, et cetera. I mean, even though there aren't that many people that have 10 million and up in them, but still they're so popular now, it's hard for me to imagine the population of the U.S. not essentially rising up and demanding something different. But it's also hard to imagine how <laughs> facing, you know, facing the fiscal situation in this country, how something's not going to be required. And what has bothered me is how little, yes, it was only the president's budget proposal last year, and it didn't go anywhere. And it's, but he just a couple days ago with his proposals on uh, changing 529s and covered out ESAs, what's bothering me is how little uproar, I guess, I hear about that. Uh, I just didn't hear much up uproar, and maybe I'm not tuned in enough, but I'm a little concerned that uh, if I didn't hear that much uproar, even at the mention of it, maybe my political analysis is wrong. And um, I don't know. It's it's a I'm watching it carefully, and it's an ongoing research project of mine to try to figure out. <laughs> yeah, here, try to predict politics. Yeah, that's gonna, you're gonna have good success with that, right? <laughs> well, think. I mean, think of it. Think of it from another perspective. I mean, look when the the income tax, uh, the the individual income tax was instituted. It was only on wealthy people. Right. It was only on people making over a certain amount. And the only reason they got it passed is because they said, "Oh, it'll never be on everybody else. It'll only be on the wealthy." Well, eventually, everybody got caught under that, um, you know, under that burden. And it's how government works. They start with something that only affects the really rich people that nobody really cares about. And eventually politicians slowly, you know, work away at the foundation and eventually it affects everybody. Um, you know, and, and I think that is the underlying uh, theory of that is very dangerous. For And that's why I think it's important for everybody to to really um, stand against the fact that they try to do this. However, as, as much as people hate Wall Street, one thing I will say, that if the government ever tried to take an IRA or 401k, and confiscate it in the sense of, oh, we'll give you money and we'll do this for your retirement, mm -hmm. I, I guarantee you Wall Street has one of the strongest lobbying groups in existence. That wouldn't fly because think of all the assets they would lose. <laughs> all is the true. money they would lose that would never happen. <laughs> uh, that's a great argument. I, you know, it, that is true. And but I'll, I'll make the flip side and we'll let it go as unresolved. And it's it's one of those things that we'll just have to continue to watch and continue probably to argue among ourselves. But. If looking at this government accountability office report, so the reason they picked that through that he picked that through that Obama in his proposal last year picked that three point four million dollar number. So the GAO estimates that thirty six thousand one hundred hundred and seventy one total taxpayers have IRA balances in excess of three million dollars. Uh, excuse me. Uh, let, me, let me run this percentage. So it's 36,171 plus 79,52 in excess of 5 million plus 791 in excess. Right. Okay. Because I, I just realized these are exclusive bands. They're not cumulative. Okay. So there's 45,228 accounts with 3 million and over. If we divide that by 300 million people, that is point. 
that's 0.0001%. Uh, so it's one with three zeros, point, anyway, 0.0001%. And in today's world, I'm sorry, I just don't see, we have such a populist economic system where that is so easy to spin. Oh, we're only affecting 0.0001% of the population. This is the wealthiest 0.0001%. Uh, of, and don't you know that the average retiree has $11,000 saved? So when it comes down to the politics of the 99% versus the 1%, <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. I, I agree, but think of it this way. How much would they be getting from that uh, 0.0001%? That's not the point. <laughs> I agree with they, you, but that's would. not the point. <laughs> how much would they, they would, be getting? They if they... more toilet paper than that. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. But how much more would they be? Yeah, anyway. How much? That's a long conversation, and I try to stay. I only I try to do the bare minimum of politics that matters uh, on this show. So, Kirk, this has been super fun. I think this is going to be one of the more popular interviews. And uh, if you've got ideas, if you've got developments of things that are going on in this market, keep me in the loop. And if you've got uh, things in the future that you think would be interesting, uh, I'm sure my audience will really enjoy. Uh, we'd love to hear from you again. So, uh, you're welcome back in the future. Great. Well, thanks a lot, Joshua. I really appreciate coming on the show, and uh, had a lot of fun as well. Hope that information can be helpful to some of you. For most of you, you probably should never think about investing in some of those other alternative investment classes. If you don't know anything about horses, just because you have money in an IRA doesn't mean that you should buy a horse. But for a few of you, the light bulb probably went off. And for those of you who, for whom it did, for those of you who can think of a, an intelligent way to leverage some unique knowledge and uh, insight that you have, hopefully that can be a useful resource for you. Please feel free to check out uh, Kirk's firm. Uh, I can't give necessarily an endorsement. Uh, you can judge for yourself based upon how knowledgeable he seems uh, from the interview. I met him only one time. I haven't worked with him, nor have I sent any clients to him, nor have I heard. But you can judge for yourself. Um, he certainly seems to be a knowledgeable, uh, knowledgeable gentleman. And check him out, innovativewealth.com. Speak to him. Speak to his partner. Share with them your situation. And maybe they can be of service to, uh, to a few of you. I love exposing people who might be able to serve you. And just make sure you do your, do your homework. Uh, this is one of those areas where I would not go it alone. I would make sure that I got some excellent advice, as he pointed out. Uh, the penalties can be stiff for getting things wrong. And when you get into some of these more unique areas that aren't mainstream, it's not that things can't be done, it's just that they need to be done right. And you definitely, I think, want to work with an expert. So uh, feel free, give Kirk a call. And if any of you uh, are able to work with him, give me some feedback personally, uh, just so I know. But he certainly seems to be very knowledgeable here. And, I, and Kirk, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I really do. Uh, I thank you. I thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for your support. Uh, if you would like to support the show, consider joining the membership program. Uh, the Irregulars details are at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash membership. That will be gone at the end of this month, replaced in the future with, with uh, a new idea. I'll be talking to you next week uh, about that as we get things launched. I want to thank you to all of you who have joined and for your support. Allows me to keep bringing you the in-depth content, information, education, inspiration that you need here five days a week. Appreciate y'all. Have a great day.
for listening to today's show. If you'd like to contact me personally, my email address is joshua at radicalpersonalfinance.com. You can also connect with the show on Twitter, at RadicalPF, and at Facebook.com slash RadicalPersonalFinance. This show is intended to provide entertainment, education, and financial enlightenment. But your situation is unique, and I cannot deliver any actionable advice without knowing anything about you. Please, develop a team of professional advisors who you find to be caring, competent, and trustworthy, and consult them because they are the ones who can understand your specific needs, your specific goals, and provide specific answers to your questions. I've done my absolute best to be clear and accurate in today's show, but I'm one person and I make mistakes. If you spot a mistake in something I've said, please help me by coming to the show page and commenting so we can all learn together. Until tomorrow, Thanks for being here.